This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Ritupana Padgiri, and today I'm going to be in conversation with Bin Shu. Bin Shu is an associate professor of sociology at Emory University. His research and writing interests lie at the intersections of culture and politics. His current research areas are collective memory, civil society, and politics of disasters. He's the author of three books, The Politics of Compassion, the Sichuan Earthquake and Civic Engagement in China, Stanford University Press 2017, which won two prizes from the American Sociological Association, Chairman Mao's Children, Generation and the Politics of Memory in China, Cambridge University Press 2021, and The Culture of Democracy, a Sociological Approach to Civil Society, Polity 2022. His articles appear in leading sociological and China studies journals. In today's conversation, we will be discussing his recently published book, The Culture of Democracy, a Sociological Approach to Civil Society, published by the Polity Press in 2022. I'm so glad to have you here. Welcome to this interview. Thank you very much for having me. Right. So let me begin by asking you your main motivation behind writing this book. Um, so this goes back to my first book, which you mentioned, uh, The Politics of Compassion, The Sichuan Earthquake and the Civic Engagement in China, so which is about a huge wave of volunteering and the civic engagement after the Sichuan Earthquake in two, two, 2008. So after that book was done, so the book was mainly a cultural sociological study of um, volunteering under authoritarian regime. So after the book was done, I felt that, well, there, there are lots of studies from cultural sociological approach to civil society, but there it should have been a book about uh, cultural sociology of civil society, a survey book, so which can provide um, a manual for researchers and also a textbook for advanced undergraduate students and graduate students' uh, seminars. So that was basically the theoretical motivation. Another motivation is that um, uh, after the first book was done, so I was observing a lot of pressing issues around the world, and particularly Hong Kong's protests from 2014 which was um, dubbed uh, the Umbrella Revolution, and then to 2019, which was even bigger, that is anti-extradition law uh, protest in 2019. So Hong Kong used to be the so-called offshore civil society in China, and which means that 
it, it as a special administrative region, it has some, you know, um, relatively independent uh, status in China. So many of the activities and organizations uh, sought help from the activists and organizations in Hong Kong. They also published commentaries in Hong Kong news media, which were not able to be published in China. So it's more like an offshore civil society for China. But um, during the protests and then later the crackdown on the protests and the Hong Kong's status as a relatively independent city uh, declined. And even now it's, you know, as many people said that um, uh, Hong Kong is becoming another Chinese society. So that demise of a civil society actually shocked me and made me to think about many issues related to civil society and democracy and also in other places such as in the United States after 2016 election, Trump administration and ultra-right wing um, political forces in not only in the United States, but also uh, in Europe as well. So all these issues uh, stimulated me to think about what is democracy and what is civil society, how we as um, sociologists can have a better view or a new perspective on civil society. So that was mainly the sort of uh, um, empirical motivation um, to, uh, for me to to write this book. Right. So how do you think the book justifies its global and interdisciplinary approach? If you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, the book itself is um, very global and very interdisciplinary, as you said. Um, I designed the book to be um, written in that way, Um, mainly because civil society itself is a very interdisciplinary field, not only in sociology, but also in political science, um, political theory, anthropology, public administrations, organizational studies, and all these disciplines have their scholars uh, working on civil society. And also you have um, fields like uh, so-called third sector research, which is an interdisciplinary field, which uh, hosted a lot of um, uh, civil society researchers. And also civil society is a very global. Um, I use civil societies in plural form because, you know, uh, you have tons of civil societies in different nation states. Um, the term itself, civil society, was originated in the in the West, especially in the um, you know intellectual history since the Enlightenment, and revived after the democratization of um, the Central and the Eastern European uh, socialist countries. But the civil societies, in practice, existed long before the term became popular in the late twentieth century. So it was a practice. It was a, a form of society that already existed before before the revival. And now civil society is even more global because of, um, you know, the development in communication technology, in transportation, international travels. And so we have lots of international NGOs and we have um, global public sphere, which is the discursive space for many people with different languages to participate in discussions of public issues. And also we have people's imagination of the world as a global world instead of just a a world based only within national um, uh, boundaries and and the territories of states. So that was 
that was the sort of just justification of a civil society. And also, I'm not entirely satisfied with many of the texts on civil societies because uh, most of them are about the West and not really so much from uh, from the uh, global South or non-Western countries. So I deliberately use a lot of cases from China, from India, from Latin America, Middle East, and from Africa and those places where usually scholars uh, do not actually pay a lot of attention uh, to civil societies, and but civil society existed in, in many ways in those non-Western places. So in this sense, I believe um, uh, the, the book actually justifies its global uh, perspective. Right. So then uh, my next question would be to know a little more about the kind of theoretical as well as the methodological framework that you have used in your book. Mm-hmm. So I adopt... Um, explicitly adopt cultural sociology as the main theoretical framework, uh, especially based on a few basic concepts of culture. So first is the culture in structure, which includes uh, values, symbols, and ideas about civil society and democracy. So it's in the culture structure. It is there in the uh, uh, narratives, in the uh, ideas. But when people are actually doing civil society, participating in civil society practices and activities, such ideas are realized in their actions. They they are likely to change or people selectively use some of them, not others, according to different situations. So this is the second um, concept of culture that is culture in action. And the third um, uh, concept of culture is Culture in interaction, that is culture as the norms of interaction formed in people's actions in in, uh, civil society activities. Uh, For example, how do you treat people with different ideas and opinions? And how do you um, uh, include people who are less uh, represented in uh, civil society and the public sphere? So the openness and, and also the inclusiveness are all about these culture. And the last one is less studied, but also studied in, in, to some extent in many studies. That, that is the culture objects, such as memorials, novels, movies, and you know uh, writings and these tangible objects, which are um, produced um, by certain cultural producers and received by audience. So all these four concepts of culture uh, form the main uh, theoretical framework uh, for me to use uh, in the book. I tend to have a more uh, inclusive attitude toward these culture instead of using only one of them as my main uh, concept. Um, I include a lot of um, studies from different perspectives, and sometimes I would say that all these cultural concepts are not really congruent with each other. For example, when an organization uh, pursues democratic values, but their activities might f- uh, follow a norm of interaction, which is quite the opposite to democratic values. Um, when they, you know, for example, if their values are about openness and inclusiveness, but their internal culture is very authoritarian. That actually happens in many, many cases. 
and also people participating in public activities to pursue the public good, but use individualistic language. It's about me, about my family, instead of about, about public good. Um, so the purpose um, of using this kind of individualistic language to pursue public good uh, could be, uh, you know, they, they want to make themselves look less like a saints, but ordinary people to convince people that, you know, we are authentic individuals instead of people who just talking big, you know, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's imposing their values on other societies. So anyway, so that's the basically the theoretical framework I use in my uh, book. Right. So again, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about how you define the culture of democracy, which is central to the book and how it is related to the civil society. Okay, good. So this is at, at the heart of this book. First, I want to say that we need to define democracy. In other words, uh, what the, actually is democracy in civil society? So lots of previous concepts of democracy used in civil society research is mainly focused on democracy as the institution, as the system. For example, electoral system, checks and balances, among um, different divisions of power and rule of law and so on and so forth, all these institutional aspects of democracy. But I would follow John Dewey um, to view democracy as a form of social life. In other words, democracy could also mean democratic social life. It could also mean how people talk to each other. So that's about deliberation, right, Uh, to um, solve problems, and democracy also could mean associational life, how people organize themselves and to improve the society. So it's about democratic social life. If we start from here, democracy means democratic social life. And then we can actually redefine um, democracy in, in a way that is um, a little bit far away from the um, prevalent concept of democracy as electoral system. So the culture of democracy refers to values about democratic social life, for example, such as uh, equality, openness, mutual respect, inclusiveness, and so on. And also it could be people's imagination of a democratic society. What is a good society? What is a democratic society? And also it could mean democratic norms of the interactions, whether they realize those values in their interactions, treat people with equality, with respect, and include uh, many people in their uh, civil society activities. All of them, all of these aspects of democracies are involved and realized in their effort to build a better society. Although sometimes they may not use the term democracy in some context. So I, I believe this uh, concept of culture of democracy can correct some problems in the literature of civil society. For example, some people use democratic institution as the end of civil society. If civil society is not leading to democratization or building a better democratic institution, and then the civil society is useless. Uh, so that was actually very prevalent in, uh, in the literature on authoritarianism, trans, uh, transitioning to uh, democracy. If civil society d- does not actually play a, a, a critical role and the civil society is useless. I would say this kind of uh, thinking is problematic if we define 
um, civil uh, de- democracy as a democratic society. I would say a democratic society is the end in itself rather than a means to a political system. And therefore, even under a mature, consolidated democratic system, the civil society could also change to own democracy. And there, there could also be a lot of problems as we witness in this world. Um, so there is also a need to develop a, develop a democratic society in those uh, countries with uh, consolidated democratic systems. The other side of this coin is that even under undemocracy, and there's a possibility of democratic social life. This is why so many activists are still pursuing civil society and participating in, in um, associational life, even under authoritarianism. So demo- uh, the culture of democracy remains the most influential part of the uh, culture of so- so civil society. So if you ask people involved in civil society actions why they're involved or observe how they interact with each other, and they will tell you that uh, you know it's about democracy, although they're not using the word democracy. They probably would say, well, public good, about openness, about inclusiveness, about all these uh, values, about democracy. And, and uh, you see there's some basic elements in, in their expressions and their understandings of their actions. Um, even though some in, such influence is most visible uh, when, uh, when democracy is under threat, in other words, when democracy is contested and challenged, and you see that the values and the culture of democracy are more than more than um, visible to others. Uh, this is why people worry about um, democracy, worry about rise of some of the sectors in the societies which could be the threat of the threat to democracy and worry about disinformation and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I want to say the culture of democracy is not all the cultures in civil society, but it's very essential uh, to civil society. Right. Also, uh, what do you think would be the relationship between civil society and the public sphere? Well, uh, the relationship has been debated by many uh, scholars um, of course, you find different answers to this question uh, from different scholars. But I try to avoid the debate by defining um, the public sphere as the discursive space. In other words, a space uh, that could be social or could be physical or could be both uh, for people to communicate with each other. So it's all about communication. It's all about discourse. And civil society itself is a bigger concept, broader concept than the public sphere because it also includes associations and individuals' actions, while the public sphere, in my definition, uh, is about discourses. So that, that's basically my conceptualization of the relationship between civil society and public sphere. All right. So, of course... Uh- we talk a lot about the political aspects of civil society, but in your book, you also look at its cultural aspect. So what do you think is the cultural aspect of civil society? Yeah, cultural aspect to civil society is usually under-theorized, but it exists. And civil society, if we go back to the very beginning, can be defined, roughly defined as the forms and the space of a social life in which people participate uh, in to pr- improve their social world, 
right? So the the goal is to improve the society instead of just you know um, um, making profits or pursuing uh, self interest, right? So civil society is mainly about how to make the society a better world, a, a good society. So central to this conception con- concept is that you know we need to have um, some view about what a good society is, what an ideal society is, and then use it as a standard to improve the current society. We're not satisfied with some problems. We need to organize ourselves to solve some problems. But what is the problem that we are addressing? Why it is a problem all depends on our imagination of a good society. So this idea is the cultural aspect of civil society. Of course, the cultural aspect is broader than the ideal, which I already talked about uh, earlier. It includes other concepts of culture, includes um, not only values, which is what I'm talking about here, but also how people selectively use those um, values and ideas in their action, that is culture in action. And also, um, you know, it includes the norm of interactions in their activities and also about culture. Uh, objects. So cultural aspect is very central to civil society. It's not a residual uh, concept as some people claim, because if you ask uh, some other scholars, they will say like culture is so redundant uh, in civil society. We need to reduce civil society concept into, let's say, NGOs or, you know, um, uh, the uh, the, the uh, internet forums and all those specific ones. I disagree with that kind of uh, idea because I believe if we reduce civil society to, to these things and we cannot understand why people are joining those activities to improve their society. So the cultural aspect is the soul of a civil society instead of just a residual, uh, residual um, uh, concept. Um, and the other uh, scholars also argue that civil society uh, as a concept should be just, you know, eliminated from um, social and political theories, which I also disagree with, uh, because I believe that, um, you know, if, if you um, get rid of the civil society at all and you are not making your analysis complete, you're making your analysis incomplete, uh, you're losing uh, many, many parts of our society, you cannot understand why people are doing certain things uh, in to improve their society. So um, overall, I believe that cultural aspect is very central to our understanding of civil society in theory and civil society in practice. Right. And how would cultural sociologists generally empirically look at this culture of democracy? That's a good question. Um, and also in the introduction, I talked about several approaches um, to uh, democracy. So one approach is that civil society is all about democracy and it's a very normative judgment. Cultural sociology is not a normative judgment, and but it takes normative ideas uh, very seriously and empirically. So in other words, cultural sociology is looking at normative ideas and analyzing why people have their normative ideas and how those ideas um, inspire and inform people to take some actions. So in other words, cultural sociology is entirely 
empirical. It empirically examines what culture, well, which culture, and and in what ways and how, and informs people to participate in civil society, and and also what culture is formed. Here, the culture means the interaction norm is formed in their activities, and such cultures may or may not be consistent with the classical view of culture of democracy in political theory. Um, so it stays a little bit away from normative judgment. Judgment by saying that, you know, if you look at an empirical reality, and people understand their actions in very Different ways, and some of the ways they understand their actions in civil society might not be in the text of the talk view or in the text of, you know, some Eastern European intellectuals in the 1970s and 1980s. They probably have a very different understandings, and the understanding could be very uh, quite the opposite to what we expect. So these surprises constitute the heart of cultural sociology of. Uh, uh, the civil society and also the culture of democracy. In other words, cultural sociologists faithfully stick to empirical facts. So if I can use an analogy, if political theory is the art of speaking, in other words, expressing normative ideas about what the culture of democracy should be, and then cultural sociology is the heart, is the art of listening, that is observing what the culture of democracy actually is, actually works in real-world civil society. So this is the fundamental distinction between um, the cultural sociological perspective and other perspectives and approaches to civil society and the culture of democracy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We've spoken so much about democracy and civil society, but just to also look at the other picture, do you think that the civil society plays any role in non-democracies? That's actually the fundamental question that drove me uh, to write this book and other um, writings as well. Um, uh, so uh, the book is mainly to clarify some of the fundamental issues about civil society and democracy and undemocracy or non-democracy. And I want to say that uh, if you look at uh, media reports and also debates, you find lots of misunderstanding about civil society in non-democracies. Historically, this kind of misunderstanding has its roots um, in the Eastern Europe and Central European uh, socialism transitioning to democracy and also the later so-called third wave democracy in Latin America and in Spain and in other places. Um, so it it is in this um, historical moment that people use the term civil society as a way to understand their pursuit of democracy, in, which is defined as democratization, as the regime change. And so you have this causal link between civil society actions to democratic transition, to regime change, 
And the success of Poland, particularly solidarity and also the civil society development before solidarity, gave people sort of a confidence in the small actions, parallel structures, and those societies or publics, um, you know, uh, counter publics under under um, uh, authoritarianism. So people begin to romanticize um, civil society. So this is where we actually started with. But later we found that, you know, if you look at the authoritarian context around the world, there are different ways uh, for civil society to um, work and, and act uh, to, to uh, different ways the civil societies actually exist and work in, in uh, authoritarian context. For example, you certainly can find some oppositional and contestive um, associations and individuals on the authoritarianism. Um, Muslim Brotherhood, you know, the Polish uh, civil society in the 1970s, and the Tiananmen movement in 1989 in China, and so on and so forth. And also human rights um, uh, activism as well. So these oppositions are important, but it's it's not the whole picture. It's not even the big biggest part of the uh, picture. If you look at some of the authoritarian contexts, for example, China, the, the context I'm most familiar with, you find a lot of associations tend to coexist with the authoritarian um, regime and tend to compromise and negotiate with the authoritarian regime to, uh, to use the resources from the state and to have the permission of the state for them to exist in that context. So you have those associations who tend to sort of silence themselves uh, about their um, you know, uh, ideological views and, and so on and so forth. And also in another tricky part of civil society on the authoritarianism is that some associations and organizations are actually the agencies uh, for the authoritarian, authoritarian uh, regimes. The regime implanted them into civil society. And there's a uh, wonderful, but also a funny term, it's called gongo, government-organized, non-governmental organizations. For example, the Red Cross in China, which was supposed to be a NGO, non-governmental organization, but it was actually a gongo, a government-organized, uh, non-governmental organization, where the, the staff of the uh, Red Cross was on the payroll of the Chinese state, and the officials in the Red Cross were actually um, you know, appointed by the Chinese state. And, so, and also the honorary president of the China Red Cross was the president of China, to now is uh, Xi Jinping. So the gongos play the role of the agencies of the regime and try to control the space, try to, you know, um, to um, maintain the stability of the civil society. And so there's a huge variety of um, civil society uh, in uh, authoritarian context and which actually co- uh, complicates our uh, taken for granted picture of civil society. Again, the main message I will try to convey in this part of the book is to say, like, do not actually assume that every civil society actors are the tank men uh, in 1989 in the Tiananmen protest standing in front of tanks. In other words, they're oppositional, they're uh, defiant. No, that was actually a misleading picture. 
many of them try to survive. Many of them conform to the norms um, set by the authoritarian regime. Many of them try to negotiate with the state, and many of them doing self censorship, avoiding uh, some of the most sensitive topics, and so on and so forth. So there's a huge variety in there. So I want to try to play out that kind of uh, complexity. Right. So you've, of course, spoken about it, but if you could also talk a little bit about how community-based organizations play a very different kind of role in such situations, uh, and of course, how associations and individuals also express their participation in civil society when it is an authoritarian state that they are interacting with. Okay, this community-based organizations um, in authoritarian contexts are mostly in the relationship of conformity and adherence to the state. In other words, in many contexts, such as in China, they are part of the state system, or they're um, tightly controlled by the state and play the function of maintaining the stability or you know, some administrative functions in the grassroots uh, society. So it's not the community-based organization we imagine in a democratic context that it actually is sometimes against the central state. So that was the part of the, um, the situation in the um, authoritarian context that we need to uh, take into, into consideration. But in those authoritarian states, we need to um, uh, have a better understanding about individuals' um, actions and their, their choices and options and when they're interacting with an authoritarian state. As I already said um, a few minutes ago, that that's, uh, you know, um, some people choose to conform, some people choose to negotiate, but certainly you still have some people choose to interact with an authoritarian state in a defiant way. And sometimes even under the seemingly uh, gloomy uh, sort of picture of the uh, dominance of the state, you find people who actually want to take the risk, uh, want to have their voice heard. For example, a few months ago uh, in China, you probably heard from the news that um, you know there was a large wave of surprising protests against the lockdown, um, the so-called zero COVID policy, right? A younger generation of uh, you know Chinese people took to the streets and to protest against lockdown. Some people even uh, generalized um, the issue a bit uh, into some political issues and and to question the legitimacy of the Chinese state. So, what actually drove people to do that? And it's a question for us to think about. What's their idea? What actually is the social basis for those people? It's not just the bravery. It's also has its social um, foundation in some of the society. Some of the things are pretty clear, although we need a lot of data to do this kind of research. Um, this younger generation, as I mentioned in, in other interviews with the media, is that uh, they're more global. They're very connected to the outside world. Some of them are overseas Chinese students. So this time you find the connections between overseas Chinese people and also domestic Chinese people. They're protesting pretty much at the same time and share information through social media 
and they actually have pretty coordinated actions in many places. Uh, sometimes you'll find a live stream, um, you know, uh, sort of a reporting, so uh, the citizen reporting of the um, protests in in China and on Twitter and so on and so forth. So this generation is very global. And the regime was not really prepared to deal with this generation. They were surprised and shocked by their daring spirit, and they were not really prepared to understand, or they, they, they basically failed to understand why people are uh, dissatisfied, why so many students or younger people just want to take the risk and, and to to um, chanting those um, pretty shocking uh, slogans. Um, so this is a way for us to understand. Um, so the previous uh, scholarship on civil societies on the authoritarianism tend to correct the older Eastern Europe um, scholarship by saying that, look, now if you look at authoritarianism and the civil society, you find that most civil societies are um, you know, more in the relationship of compromise and, and negotiation with the authoritarian states. They don't want you to take to the streets. And now we need to re-examine this uh, concept. Of course, it needs a lot of research. Right. Last question. What is the global civil society that you refer to and how does it operate in the contemporary world? I believe to some extent, every nation state-based civil society now is a global civil society because we are living in a global world. But in the book, I define global society in a more specific way. It refers to the actors' um, processes and also institutions and, and discourses, communications beyond national borders and between different nation states. For example, international NGOs, and volunteers who travel to another country to uh, do their work, and also international networks of organizations, and more importantly, cultural values and ideas, practices about people as residents of the whole world instead of citizens of nations. So this is how uh, global society um, uh, operates in contemporary world. Uh, for example, w- w- when we are talking here in this podcast, it's part of the you know, global civil society is the public sphere, right? We are talking about democracy. We are talking about civil society and pressing issue around the world, which is not even imaginable maybe 20 years ago. And we do not have this technology to do that. We rely on, um, you know, traditional media and the traditional media have more gatekeepers. Now, if you are um, diligent uh, enough, um, you do podcasts and invite important people and scholars and even ordinary people to talk about issues and which is more pervasive in this global public sphere. So we are in the in a more global world. Um, therefore, I believe that every understanding of civil society t- today need to be globalized, even if even your um, uh, subject is within a national, uh, nation-state territory, we still need a global perspective to understand what is going on in particular countries. Well, thank you so much for this very engaging conversation and for giving me the time and opportunity to engage with this very important book. I hope that our listeners actually go back and pick up a copy and read it. So thank you once again. Thank you very much.